The Water Values Podcast, Session 8. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. And here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Water Values Podcast. I hope everyone had a great holiday weekend. I'm recording this intro on Dingus Day. What's Dingus Day, you ask? Well, it's a celebration of Easter Monday in Poland, and it's celebrated in Polish communities around the globe. Interestingly enough, one of the Dingus Day traditions involves boys and girls drenching each other with water. Technically, boys were supposed to drench girls on Dingus Day, and the girls were to drench the boys on Easter Tuesday. But I understand that oftentimes the girls didn't bother waiting until the next day to get their revenge. Anyway, I first heard of Dingus Day in college because I had four pledge brothers from South Bend, Indiana, and South Bend celebrates one of the larger Dingus Day festivals in the U.S. So by listening to the Water Values podcast, you not only educate yourself about water issues, you also get your cultural horizons expanded, especially when they involve water like the Dingus Day traditions do. Okay, on with the show. Today is an interview with Marty Melchior of Interfluve, Inc. Marty restores rivers and waterways for a living, or does he reclaim them? I'll let you decide after listening to the interview. Marty gives us a lot to think about in terms of the way we think about water. He also builds on last week's talk with Ellen Wool, although Marty discusses how we go about rehabilitating our rivers and streams and gives us a real hands-on look at how we, we rehabilitate our streams. Well, if you're a regular listener, you know that before we get into the podcast, I need to make a few disclaimers. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that thinks water issues are interesting and that public education about water issues is needed. And that includes educating myself about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Marty, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. And could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how your interest in water began? Sure. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in um, molecular biology. Um, I have a master's degree in fisheries. Um, I didn't start out in uh, rivers. Um, I worked in the medical device industry actually for a little while uh, before going back to grad school. Um, I did grow up on a little ephemeral stream uh, in Minnesota, and uh, my family had a cabin on the lake, so I was always around water, and um, I think that's where my interest uh, started. I used to build little dams on the creek and pull them out uh, repeatedly. So I pretty much do the same thing now. Got it. Now, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you do now? Yeah, I'm a regional director for a company called Interfluve. Uh, Interfluve has been around for about 30 years. Um, we are a river restoration design firm. And so we essentially assess rivers, um, look at the problems, and try and find solutions to those problems. And 
then we will design river restoration projects and do construction management uh, until those projects are completed. Okay, when you're looking around at these at these various projects, what what typically causes the need for a river to be restored? Well, if you look at uh, the United States uh, from a big picture perspective, um, we've done a lot of bad things to our rivers. We've straightened many of them. Uh, many of them are contaminated, uh, ditched, dammed, uh, diverted. Uh, we've buried a lot of them in pipes. Uh, we have tiled a lot of our agricultural drainage. Um, you know, the EPA, I think, estimates that <clears throat> roughly a third of the rivers in the U.S. are impaired, polluted, or um, somehow uh, endangered. Um, and, and if you look at it from a watershed perspective, we've logged off 95-plus percent of our old-growth forests. So every forest that you see now is either second growth or, or primary growth forest, a brand-new forest. We've plowed up most of our prairies, um, paved over all of our urban watersheds. And, and the result of all that is that water, when it hits the ground, moves faster and hotter into our streams. <clears throat> and that, in turn, causes a lot of erosion, a lot of sediment deposition, uh, causes the streams to heat up, degrade to the habitat. Um, and then if you want to talk about flooding and floodplains, so we've filled in a lot of our floodplains. Um, we've dumped, you know, millions of yards of concrete and riprap into our stream banks to try and keep them um, from unraveling, you know, due to our long trail of misdeeds there. So they're in pretty urgent need of assistance and, and often overlooked. Okay, now back in episode uh, or session seven of the Water Values podcast, Dr. Ellen Wool from Colorado State University talked to us a little about um, rivers and how I think her point was primarily that, look, we, we've had the wrong perspective on rivers. We're, we've treated them kind of like con just conduits or, or gutters, so to speak, rather than looking at them as an ecosystem. How does the restoration process? How do you how do you kind of reverse that that process? How do you turn it from just that conduit back into the ecosystem? Yeah, well, it's really a matter of just uh, like you said, reversing what's been done. So, all of those things I talked about, like dams, for instance, um, a lot of times all you have to do is take the dam out. Um, if a stream has been straightened, uh, we can put that sinuous plan form back into it, um, and we can restore the, the habitat features that have been lost. Um, and so it's really just a matter of trying to target some uh, sort of a spatial target um, and a temporal target as well. So we're trying to go back in space and time and, and figure out what the stream used to look like. Um, is there, there's usually no way that we can go actually back into some historical frame of reference and restore it to, say, what it was like in 1400, um, because the climate has changed um, and land use has changed dramatically. And so we have to do what's really called reclamation. It's, it's not really restoration. Um, restoration implies 
you know, setting it back to some some target like that. But what we're doing is reclaiming portions of uh, what was the undisturbed, if you want to call it that, uh, stream. Okay, and so in this reclamation project process, uh, it sounded to me like you fr- at first you want to understand kind of the historical condition of the river and then what comes next once you once you figured out what the historical condition of that river is and and you've obviously recognized a need for the reclamation what what's kind of the rest of the process sure well um getting a handle on the the constraints that you have is the first thing so we need to do an assessment a geomorphic assessment uh, where we look at where the water's coming from, uh, what does the stream look like, what's its current condition. And um, we can look at other streams uh, that are perhaps not as impaired and compare the two and see uh, where we think that that stream um, should be going or uh, what its state ought to be. And then we can start thinking about um, how to do that. And so the next step in that process then is um, trying to figure out how much water is coming down and when, uh, so hydrologic investigation. And then we look at uh, hydraulics, which is, uh, you know, what's the water doing in the channel? Um, what are the erosive forces at work there? And then we'll uh, start to come up with design plans. Uh, say, let's say that we're taking a channelized or a ditch stream and making it into a, a sinuous stream again. We'll look at uh, what that sinuous platform should look like, um, how deep should the riffles be, how deep should the pools be, um, how high are the banks, um, are we going to incorporate things like uh, large wood, uh, woody debris, um, riffles for spawning, and things like that. And then we'll develop plan sheets that actually show that on there, just like you would um, if you were engineering a building or a parking lot, we, we go through a similar process for um, designing streams. It's actually an engineering exercise. Okay. Um, and you talked about the introduction of wood into the streams. I know Dr. Wool talked a little about that. Could you, could you expand on, you may, you haven't heard her interview yet, obviously, but could you, could you talk about the importance of wood in the streams? Yeah, sure. Ellen's great. She knows more about rivers than just about anybody in this country. And um, she's absolutely right that uh, wood played an incredible role in uh, the stability of streams and the formation of habitat um, historically. So if anyone has a chance to go look at an old growth forested stream, what they'll see is uh, they may not even see the stream because there's so much wood that's fallen into the river. Um, it, it really occludes the channel in places, it blocks flow, and a lot of times in those old growth forest streams, the, if it's a small stream, the water actually flows underneath all this wood, this matrix of logs. Um, and so <clears throat> over the years, as, as trees get older, you know, the branches fall in, the trees blow over, and they, they fall into the creek. Um, whenever that wood contacts the water, you'll get uh, things like eddies forming and scour and differential sediment deposition, so sediment depositing in different places. And what that does is create complexity. And 
we know that fish and bugs in the stream thrive on complexity. They need complex visual environments so that they can hide from predators, and they need complex flow so they can, in one instance, maybe uh, rest in a pool, or in another instance, look for bugs that are floating down so they can eat them. In another instance, they might want a faster uh, flowing riffle so they can spawn uh, in there. And and so wood provides complexity into um, what would be normally uh, kind of a homogenous landscape. And you can see that if you look at streams where wood has been removed, um, the habitat is is somewhat featureless. So what we try and do then to uh, set the clock back or to restore that complexity is to bring wood in. So we'll um, bring in logs and we call them root wads sometimes, logs with roots on them. We can put individual pieces in the stream or we can build log jams or complexes of wood as part of bank stabilization projects to help add complexity. And and all the and essentially it sounds to me like the wood is the linchpin or the one of the key ingredients to this complexity, and then that complexity in turn improves water quality downstream that that many of our uh, cities get their drinking water from. Is that a fair? That's statement? right, actually. Yeah, that's correct. Um, what is one part of that process? You know, there are certainly many many rivers and streams that don't have uh, forested. Uh, riparian zones, um, and so complexity comes in other ways too, but certainly wood has played a big role in in the history of our small streams and, and our big rivers as well. If you, um, if you know, well, if you look back at historical records of the Missouri River and the Mississippi River, big rivers in the Midwest, we know that the grade of those rivers was often controlled by massive log jams that were you know, 100 feet high and miles across. Um, and we removed all those log jams, and so that has had a dramatic impact on um, the channel bed of, the, of those rivers. It's dropped many of those rivers um, and lowered the groundwater across vast areas of the Midwest. Mm. Now, what what are some of the ways that these Midwestern rivers that don't have the forested riparian zones, what are some of the sources of complexity for those rivers? Well, prairie streams, for instance, or streams that um, are in, well, let's take one, one example at a time. So a wetland stream, for instance, has higher groundwater. Um, those streams generally have uh, fairly steep side slopes uh, to the banks. Um, there's often <clears throat> undercuts and um, places for fish to hide there. Um, and wetland vegetation, shrubbery, and things provide overhanging uh, cover there. Um, if you're in a prairie stream, you, you've got similar situation there. You've, you're typically in a riffle pool kind of stream type, so you'll have uh, steeper riffles going into pools on the outside of meander bends where the water velocity is faster. And so you can undercut banks in those situations, and the prairie grasses can hold the bank in place um, so it doesn't necessarily collapse, um, and you'll get undercut bank cover there. Okay. You, you, you will find wood in, in those places as well. They're, they're, the odd tree you know, is inputting wood into the stream here and there. 
Okay. Um, okay. So back to back to the reclamation process. You've talked, I think, a lot about kind of the front end of the process. How do you uh, develop, say, the goals for what the reclamation project is is aimed to achieve, and and how do you measure some of your objectives? And do do you have any like hypotheses you test, things like that? Sure. A lot of times we're working with um, granted projects or um, projects with multiple funding partners and, and stakeholders. So they might be um, people like the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, State um, Department of Natural Resources, uh, local municipalities who maybe have a water quality or an aesthetic interest as well, um, recreational users, um, and private landowners too. And so the first thing that we do is sit down with those folks and talk about project performance criteria. So uh, what do they want to see come out of that project? And, uh, and what you'll find a lot of times is that um, when you solicit opinions from these folks, a lot of them have the same opinion. Um, and it's usually an improvement in fish populations or uh, improved water quality, uh, improved riparian corridor function um those are generally the top top three so you've you established those those goals for the project how do you on the other side once the project's done how do you test uh whether or not the goals have been met what kind of say monitoring and uh you know is there a monitoring plan in place and and what do you what's what's kind of post project what does that look like sure um, a lot of times monitoring is done by others, so we don't like to monitor our own projects just from a, a conflict of interest standpoint, but a lot of our project partners will do that, so agency folks um, or project owners, and they're usually looking at biological response, so um, monitoring fish populations is popular, uh, macroinvertebrates or aquatic insect populations. Um, abundance and diversity, uh, riparian wildlife um, bugs, or I'm sorry, uh, birds, for instance, um, you know, amphibians. Um, water quality is often monitored, uh, dissolved oxygen, for instance, or temperature. Um, for instance, if you're taking a dam out, um, you want to assess whether or not the removal is improving temperature so you sample upstream and downstream uh, real quick uh, can, I, can i interrupt you there real quick you said mm -hmm. uh in terms of the temperature what are you looking for in terms of temperature are you, do you want a lower temperature or higher temperature and and talk, if you could talk a little about that i'm sorry to interrupt you no that's okay so most of the time uh, we're interested in reducing stream temperature um Trouts, for instance, trout streams are generally groundwater fed, and so they're oftentimes very cold. And they they have a low diversity of, of fish and bugs, but those the fish and the bugs that are in cold water streams are generally intolerant of uh, poor water quality and warm water conditions. And so um, we would tar target cold water in that situation. Warm water streams have a higher diversity of organisms and the organisms that live in those streams are more tolerant of, of poor water conditions and warmer, warmer water. But generally speaking, even in those systems, uh, 
when we're doing a dam removal, for instance, we want to aim for slightly cooler temperatures, uh, which generally correlates to uh, better water quality. Okay, great. Now, I, I was sorry for uh, interrupting you when you were talking about kind of sure. the uh, the monitoring and evaluation. So please continue on that on that track. I just wanted to get into the temperature issue real quick. Yeah. So again, uh, measuring the biological response is important. So fish and bug response in stream, and then also sometimes uh, wildlife response in the riparian zone. Um, what's also is very important in terms of the success of any kind of stream bank stabilization treatments or floodplain treatment is the response of the vegetation community. So we need to monitor the success of that vegetation, uh, whether or not it's growing, and then long-term uh, looking at the diversity of the plantings. And we oftentimes, uh, almost always, are, are targeting uh, native species. So uh, along with that comes the removal of invasive plants or the control of uh, aggressive, invasive, exotic plants. Well, that's an interesting uh, point there. Has... has the environment we've created by, say, straightening the rivers, treating them more as a conduit rather than eco and an ecosystem, has that essentially allowed a lot of these invasive species to come in and, and have their growth fostered? Uh, what's, what's the role of how we've historically treated rivers and invasive species? Sure. Well, if you look at a map of any invasive species in this country, they typically follow the uh, transportation corridors. And those areas where we have um, a lot of human use and um, agriculture. So the, the absolute worst uh, invasive species out there are things like reed canary grass. Uh, if you go to any stream in the Midwest, um, there are virtually no streams that don't have this in it. But any kind of low gradient, uh, former diverse wetland in the Midwest is usually a monoculture of reed canary grass. Um, the same can be said for coastal marsh areas out east, and the species there would be Phragmites uh, or giant reed grass. Um, there are other plants that are just as heinous, like kudzu and knotweed. Um, if you go to Chicago, for instance, and look at any of the urban riparian corridors there, you essentially have three species. You've got an oak overstory of older trees, and then you have buckthorn um, in the middle and garlic mustard underneath that. And so almost all of the native species have been uh, completely replaced by just a few um, invasives. And I don't, I don't know that it was an active, it certainly wasn't an active plan, but it's just a matter of uh, people doing what they do and really not considering whether or not their actions are spreading invasive species around. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, the damage has been done. It's, it's certainly gotten worse over the last 20 years. It's probably more of a transportation issue and human movement issue than it is treating the you know, the river as a conduit as contrasted with as an ecosystem. Yeah, it really doesn't matter in that case. Like in the case of reed canary grass, it's such a prolific seed producer 
um, and uh, a rhizome that once it's in the system, um, anywhere in the system, it, as soon as you get a flood, it's going to blanket the downstream area and a new set of seeds. So okay. um, there's not a whole lot you can do, and it really doesn't matter how you manage the water in that situation. Okay. Could you talk a little now about how different geography affects the reclamation projects, for example, mountainous geography versus the um, plains geography? Sure. Well, I, earlier I talked about constraints, and the one of the first things we do is kind of look at river restoration from the bottom up. And so we, we look at the underlying bedrock, uh, the surficial geology that controls uh, how the water flows off the landscape. And so in mountain areas, you're in a lot of hard rock there. Um, it's much steeper, and so streams are straighter. Um, they have a different longitudinal profile, so that you might waterfall over or cascade over boulder drops and things like that. As you get down in the watershed lower, and now you start to come out of, say, mountain foothills, um, stream slope decreases and you get into more of a riffle and pool kind of environment. The soils are generally um, finer as you go downstream. And then once you get out into the plains or uh, coastal plains, uh, Midwest is a great example. Um, we have very low gradient streams and the soils are finer. So you're talking about maybe clay and silty loam uh, and sand instead of gravel and boulders. And so there's a, a really complicated interaction between how rainfall reacts when it hits the landscape, how snow melts in those landscapes, where that water goes underground versus over the surface, and um, how that water interacts with the, the soils. And so all of that has to be taken into account uh, when you're restoring a stream. Fascinating how everything's interconnected. Um, let's talk about some of your the projects you've been working on. I I kind of got in touch with you via the Eel River Headwater Restoration in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. In Massachusetts and other places in the Northeast, uh, there have been historically a lot of uh, cran cranberry farms. Um, a lot of those farms are getting old, and it's more difficult now for cranberry owners to make a profit. Um, there's more competition, and the bogs themselves are, are reaching their design life, if you want to call it that. The Eel River site was a 40-acre cranberry bog that had at one time been a fen, a wetland, with a small stream running through it. And the owners there decided to um, sell that land to the town of Plymouth, and the town of Plymouth has a very active um, ecological restoration program uh, run by David Gould there. And David wanted to do something there. I went out and looked at the site with him probably in 2005, and we talked about wetland and stream restoration there. And uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. So cranberry bogs are old wetlands. So they're old peat bogs um, that have been covered up with sand 
Um, a long time ago, in the early 1800s, um, a landowner on the coast found that if you put sand on top of uh, coastal na native cranberry bogs, uh, the cranberries uh, would get stimulated to produce more berries. And so what cranberry bogs do now is put a layer of sand down every so often. And over a 150-year period, you've got uh, at Eel River, we had about a foot and a half of sand. Um, we looked at either taking that sand off or raising the groundwater up and restoring the wetland on top of the sand. And it turned out to be uh, much, much cheaper to raise the groundwater level up, so that's what we did. And we built about 8,000 feet of stream channel, took out a large, well, a 15-foot high dam, and um, restored a lot of uh, brook trout spawning and rearing habitat there. Okay, and, and that project ended up in, or at least the, the actual reclamation construction work was done about when, and, and how's the monitoring going? Sure. That project was completed in 2009, and the town has, and, and the state uh, Department of Ecological Restoration, um, they have also been just fantastic in getting these projects going, and they have been monitoring this project for vegetation. Uh, a few students at uh, University of Massachusetts uh, have been monitoring fish and macroinvertebrate populations in the stream too. And uh, the long-term plan for that wetland is to be an Atlantic white cedar swamp. And so um, in about 10 or 15 years, the, the place which is now um, sort of a um, emergent wetland uh, forb and uh, sedge meadow will be a forested uh, wetland or swamp. What about some other projects that you've been that you've worked on uh, in your time with Interfoof? Can you talk a little bit about a couple of those projects? Sure, we're uh, working right now on removing uh, on one more dam out of two on the Patapsco River in in Baltimore. Um, there's an exciting project in Taunton, Massachusetts. We have taken out we've taken out two dams already on um, the Mill River in Taunton, and we are going to take out the third dam probably in the next year and a half. And um, it's expected that the Mill River will have one of the largest or the largest uh, herring and alewife migrations on the East Coast once that project is completed. Um, the biggest problem with dams is that they block fish passage, and so the fish are, are literally coming right up to the dam and stopping in this case. Um, and so we've been monitoring um, fish populations there. Uh, our partners have been monitoring those, I should say, and we're really looking forward to taking out that last dam and getting those fish upstream. Terrific. Well, you know, I'm looking at your website here as we're talking, and you've got some fantastic or some, some great pictures of some of the projects you've worked on. Take a historical project you've worked on and tell us just a little bit about, about one of these projects that's kind of featured on your website. Yeah, there's a project, um, another Mill Creek project. There, there are so many mill rivers and uh, mill creeks in the United States. I think Interflu's probably worked on 20 of them. But one of the first projects I did with Interflu was a, a project called Mill Creek in Plymouth, Wisconsin. And um, that was an old uh, 
aquaculture facility. So they had taken a, a small headwater stream and really dug up the entire floodplain and put that stream into a, a series of ponds with dams on them to raise trout. And uh, back in about 2000, uh, I started working on that project, and we ended up removing all of the dams, really just grading the floodplain flat again and building a new stream system on top of that. And that little stream, which is about 3,000 feet long total, um, has really provided the bulk of uh, trout production for the Onion River system to which it feeds. And so it's been fun to watch that project evolve over 14 years and uh, see how the vegetation changes and how the stream um, you know, has been producing uh, fish. Okay, terrific. Well, you've really imparted some terrific information today. Where can people go to find out more about your work? website is the best place for that. Um, that's at www.interfluve.com, and that's spelled I-N-T-E-R-F-L-U-V-E. And there are uh, numerous examples of uh, river restoration uh, on that site. Great. I, I really recommend you check it out because the, the pictures on the website are just absolutely fascinating, and it's it's a really interesting uh, interesting site. It looks like you guys do absolutely fantastic work. So Marty, thanks again for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on the Water Values Podcast and we'll talk to you soon. Happy to be here. Thank you. You bet. That was my interview with Marty Melchior of Interfluve. Really interesting stuff. Stuff that I probably knew went on, but not nearly in the detail that Marty explained. He also brought the river restoration process into much sharper focus when he talked about the process that goes into restoring or more accurately reclaiming rivers from the historical research on the waterway to be reclaimed to the post-reclamation monitoring. I thought the temperature issue that reclamation typically aims at lowering waterway temperatures was interesting, and also the discussion of invasive species in our waterways and in the riparian zones interested me. Marty also gave us some great examples of restoration projects around the country that he's worked on. Just very interesting what can be done to improve our waterways. And the more I talk with these folks in the water industry, the more I'm learning. I conducted another interview today with someone who advises businesses on water risk and some of the same things that Marty talked about in this session and Ellen Wool talked about in session six were things that my most recent interview subject discussed, albeit from a different perspective. It's not really fair to you right now because I won't be releasing the episode recorded today for a few weeks, but I continue to find and learn about new interconnections amongst various issues in water, and I hope you're learning those same interconnections as well. Well, please let me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on thewatervalues.com or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at dtm1993. The show notes for this episode will be online at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod eight. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes and Stitcher and any other podcast directory on which you download podcasts. That would be so very helpful in spreading the word about the podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. 
Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.